Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. Tom Brady was drafted in the sixth round. I'm sure Tom Brady was like saying to himself, all these teams that are passing me right now, and I'm losing all this money, I'm going to stick it in your face down the road. Right. And that yeah. was sort of my attitude. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Uh, and uh, we're in the new year. Yvonne, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Uh, you know, uh, plugging away, doing well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, busy, busy, busy. Somehow, even though we, we, we are on our new schedule of one episode every two weeks, it still feels crazy. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, especially since uh, everything, you know, all the courts are open back up. So uh, everybody puts you on a trial calendar at, uh, at one time. So all at one uh, time. You know, yeah, exactly. Unreal. So, I <laughs> so know. We, got a, we got a bunch of trials going on. Exactly. Um, which is good, which is good. It's uh, I love being back in the courtroom and love being uh, love getting our cases to trial. I know, but it can, but it can be hectic. Exactly. It's we're, we're in for a hectic uh, winter um, into spring. Well, anyway, if anybody uh, can understand what we're talking about, it's our host for today. Um, Greg Goldfarb. Thanks for joining us today, Greg. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. I, um, so as I kind of alluded to, if anybody's going to understand juggling a busy schedule, including podcasts, it's, um, it'd be Greg, um, just Greg, I want to tell our listeners a little bit about you. Um, Greg's an attorney. He's also a podcaster, an entrepreneur, an investor, and an activist. Um, he's been practicing for over 25 years in, uh, whistleblower litigation, mass torts, accidents, civil rights claims. So, you know, the real, the real easy stuff, the real straightforward stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, he has his own firm. So you can look him up at greggoldfarb.com. That's G-R-E-G-G-G-O-L-D-F-A-R-B.com. Um, you can also look him up at Instagram at mass tort guy. Um, and you spell that how it sounds. Uh, Greg uh, does a lot. In addition to his practice, he he advocates for the disabled community and um, has served as a, a past president of the South Florida Center for Independent Living. He's also an environmental activist and formed a nonprofit called Clean Miami River. Um, but as I mentioned, um, one of the coolest parts, especially for today's episode, is that Greg has his own podcast with over 100 episodes, and it's called the Cut to the Chase podcast. Um, and you can find that wherever podcasts are sold um, for free. Yes, but, sold. Yeah. Uh, Greg, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your your podcast? Um, all right. So, yeah, I started two years ago and, you know, sort of like you, I'm doing the once a week, once every two weeks shows. Um, I sort of wanted to let it develop on its own. I didn't really go in with a, hey, this podcast is going to be showing people how to invest in real estate or or how to build your practice or anything like that. I have always had sort of an inquisitive bat, uh, mind. So I figured, you know what, let me let me just do one show at a time and see where it goes. I'm a big public interest person, environmentalist, and a lot of the mass tort work that I do all has a public interest bent, you know, or spin, whether, you know, it's sex abuse with the clergy or even the Boy Scouts, or I'm sure people have heard about the Roundup. So a lot of products or drugs cause lots of 
problems or environmental damage. Right now, a big thing that's people are going to start hearing about a lot is the water contamination, forever chem chemicals. So I like that kind of stuff. It kind of dovetails into the mass tort or the litigation that I'm doing. So I have a lot of colleagues that are, you know, in charge of a lot of these big cases across the country. So I bring them on. They give an update on the show. I showcase them. I learn something. My audience, a lot of my audience are lawyers or law students or even people that are litigants that can't get in touch with their lawyers to get an update. So they'll go on the listen to my show. Usually a lot of the cases that I'm talking about take four or five years. So, you know, mark it on your calendar in three months. Come on. I bring on one of the guests and we talk about, you know, the update on the show. I'm, I'm guessing that doesn't make for happy clients if the only way they hear about your case, their case is on your show. Yeah, I know that was really <laughs> not, that was not really a thought. Uh, right. I, I put my show on YouTube on my YouTube channel, and I get a lot of comments from people that are like, "You know, thanks for the update." You know, I can't get in touch. You know, or you know, their attorney gives them a 10 second update, or they don't even right. talk to the attorney. They talk to a paralegal that says, "You know, call us back in three months." There's nothing yeah. to report on. Right. That right. Doesn't really, a lot of the, a lot of the people really don't want to hear that. They want to right. get a little bit more than that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, it's always that's one of my Steve and I, that's one of our fun, you know, favorite things about the podcast is that um, just getting to learn from these people, you know, selfishly, just getting to to learn ourselves while we're recording. And then if, if other people can learn as well, then even better. Yeah. Um, so anyway, well, um, I want to. Oh, go ahead, Steve. I was just going to say, I, I don't know that we maybe people figured it out from the fact that he that he started clean Miami River. But Greg is based out of uh, Miami, Florida. And I don't know that we told everybody that, but uh, no, I yeah. blew right by that. <laughs> <laughs> I just knew people were going to immediately right. go to his exactly. website <laughs> exactly. and his Instagram and learn that for themselves. And so, if you see just, the, the shine on my face, you have to assume that I'm somewhere you know, somewhere. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, th th this uh, is, this is part of the sel selfish part of my, um, uh, of me doing the uh, podcast is that I actually have a case going to trial in Miami in April. So, uh, any insights you can give me on, uh, on trying cases down there would be greatly appreciated. Well, you know, listen, number one, you know me. So if you're in a, a bind and you need help during your trial, getting a witness, uh, I'm right across the street from the Miami-Dade County Courthouse. So if you need a place to go hang out, uh, you know, and regroup or strategize or whatever, we have three or four big conference rooms. So you're more than welcome. Just give me a little heads up. And yeah, uh, that's right. that's greatly appreciated. We will probably take you up on that. <laughs> yeah, because that's right. <laughs> Um, well, so as we talked about leading in and obviously for the show, Greg is an experienced trial lawyer. He's tried a bunch of cases in state and federal court. And I was, I was joking. I don't know if it came across, but for me, uh, civil rights cases, 1983 cases in particular, I have to relearn that law. Every time I look at one of those potential cases, I, 
it just will not stick into my brain. Um, it's a very, for those who don't know, it's a very uh, difficult area of the law to litigate in, especially as a plaintiff. Um, and the case we're going to talk about today is uh, along those lines, but really, really interesting and in sort of this intersection of that kind of law, the work that Greg does, um, the, the uh, context in Miami at the time. Um, so I'm going to tell our listeners a little bit about the case, and then I'm going to stop talking so that uh, we can get Greg to tell us more about it. Um, the case we're yeah, going to talk about today is Arthur Walker versus Miami-Dade County. His background, Arthur um, was a high school teacher, and he suffered from a mental illness. He had schizophrenia um, and manic depression, and he uh, treated those with medication. Um, but as as many of us understand with clients or family members or otherwise, sometimes folks uh, stop taking those medications. And in June 1986, he had stopped taking his medication and he was suffering from hallucinations, depression and agitation. Uh, so he was arrested in, in June 1986 when um, some folks complained about him banging himself against uh, the wall in an, in an apartment building, which was actually where he lived. So this was his neighbors that had reported him. Uh, so an officer came and called eight backup officers uh, when Mr. Walker uh, sounds like didn't initially respond to officers and, and was trying to leave. Um, and those officers violently struggled with Mr. Walker uh, before arresting him um, he was charged with resisting arrest with counts of resisting arrest with violence and battery on the police officers. Um, he spent five, two five counts of each five, five counts, counts of each. Of each. So, yeah. Thank you. Um, and he spent uh, two weeks after this in intensive care with life threatening injuries. And then he was transferred to a psychiatric unit from there. He could not walk for three months. Um, he lost his license to teach. And so Greg represented him in claims against the county, um, state common law claims, and for a violation of his civil rights under 1983. Um, specifically, as I was kind of alluding to earlier, the fact that the county really had a uh, lack of adequate policies and training for officers that were dealing with the mentally ill. And, you know, that the failure to do it at that point essentially amounted to deliberate indifference to the rights of those folks because. Um, at this point, it was a known problem that you were going to be dealing with uh, the the mentally ill in, in their line of work and that that was going to require certain types of training that we'll get into. Um, Greg prevailed on that uh, on those claims at trial and, and in special interrogatories. The jury found that he had proved all the elements of that 1983 claim. He got a one point five million dollar verdict. Um, and we'll talk about uh, what happened on appeal after that. Um, but Greg, first, I guess, backing up, how did I, can you, can you sort of flesh out the facts a little bit where I missed them and also explain kind of, um, the timeline of this case from when, the, when things happened to when you actually filed the case to up forward to the appeal. Okay. So you got, you know, you, you, I, listen, the case concluded 2000, right after 2002, maybe I think was the appellate decision. Uh, result overturning the verdict. Um, I remember uh, the case was supposed to start trial uh, September 11th, and 9/11 hit, and so the case got uh, the trial got rolled over. So that was like the first one of the first interesting parts of the case. 
Um, Arthur was, I don't know if he's still alive. I have not talked to him in a long time. He uh, lived in North, Northern Florida and was the most delightful guy. Um, not upset about what had happened. I mean, it's not only that he, you know, really got traumatized and physically just abused to the point he couldn't, I, I think he couldn't walk for three months. Um, that alone, you know, would make people really change their tenor in terms of, you know, society and the police. But he was really, he was smooth. You know, I really enjoyed him. And I really wanted, you know, number one, I want to win for everybody. But I really, I felt so bad about, you know, when I got the case and I saw that he also lost his license to, you know, his high school teacher, public school teacher or whatever. And he lost all the benefits from that. It was just really uh, just an eye-opening experience. I was a young attorney at that point. I think I was probably maybe seven years out of law school when I got the case. Um, so in Florida and many other states, when you sue for like, let's just say excessive force or negligence, um, in Florida, we have a statute that um, caps the amount of money that you can win against a governmental entity. So the cap back then was $200,000. Um, for a basically a straightforward excessive use case. So you, earlier you talked about the civil rights version. Um, at the time that I got the case, it was probably 10 years old. It had been filed strictly as a negligence, uh, uh, you know, abuse, you know, police abuse kind of case. And at that time I was, um, I was trying to get my hands on any trial that I could. And I didn't want just your straightforward automobile rear end case. I, I came out of law school. I was a mediocre student. So I really couldn't get a job with a big firm or anything like that. My father was an attorney. He still is an attorney and still downtown. He's 91 years old, Max Goldfarb, and he still practices full time and drives. Awesome. Yeah, he drives. <laughs> yeah, right, right. right. <laughs> Every day I call him, I'm like, where are you? That's awesome. (laughs) So I sort of had the advantage of having him and all of his colleagues. So I I said, you know what? I don't care about making money right now. I just want to get in, try cases, get my hands on anything. So I started off doing that Clean Miami River nonprofit. And I got hooked up with a bunch of environmental groups. And I had a trial before I knew it. An eight-week trial, an administrative trial down in the Keys. Very exciting issues. That rolled into another trial. Uh, in the Everglades, like immediately after. So like within about a year and a half after law school, I had 13 weeks of complicated trial work. And I was like, okay, let's keep it going. So I ended up getting this case. Um, by that time, I had had 30 trials, asylum trials, employment discrimination, uh, fraud cases, anything I could get my hands on. So this was very exciting. And I had started to learn a little bit about the 1983 laws. And the 1983 component allows you to avoid the, st- the, ca- the state law cap. So whatever you get, not only do you get that, but you also get attorney's fees for the time that you spend in it. So I looked at the case and um, the f- firm that was handling was a prominent firm and they just weren't moving the case and they were looking to get rid of it. So I gladly took it off their hands and I immediately amended the complaint to add on the civil rights count and the judge let it happen, even though the case was 10 years. A lot of judges after 10 years wouldn't let you do it. But very sympathetic, very good judge. 
Um, Frederica Smith, who ended up moving to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, um, just a great lady. And she was empathetic to the whole scenario. Um, I don't know if that answers your question or maybe I answered more than one. <laughs> no, that was great. That that helps, it, you know, explain kind of both how it was, why it took a long time to get to trial and then also, you know, fleshes out kind of the, the context of, of the case that you were trying it in. Um, one, one of the things that you mentioned um, uh, in general, when we were talking about this case ahead of time, figuring out what case you were going to talk about was sort of the, the, the overall sort of social setting in Miami of when this happened in terms of um, sort of uh, the fact that these officers should have um, should have knowledge on how to interact with the mentally ill because there was really a lot of sort of a large homeless population or I, I don't think you're supposed to say homeless anymore. Um, <laughs> people without a home uh yes well or, the, or, there was the it, so it, i think it was right around 1980 there was the mariel boat lift uh which brought a lot of immigrants to miami and then i guess uh during the reagan era there was a lot of deinstitutionalization of uh of mental health uh patients and so i i think those two things together meant that there was a lot of people living on the street in miami uh, or, or, or maybe, maybe in lower income housing that had mental health problems. Uh, and, and I think that was part of the claims, uh, that you were bringing as far as the lack of training, um, that, that they should have known that they're, that they would need to deal with, uh, people with mental health issues. Is that fair? Yeah, that's, that's, uh, you know, I, I love that you mentioned the Mary Elbow lift or whatever. Right now we're having sort of a, a small Mary Elbow lift episode as well. But even before that, um, after Vietnam, a lot of the vets moved to Miami and were on the streets. And a lot of the vets had mental Ill illness. Um, and the, and the, 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 you know, the fact of the matter is a lot of the, especially in the criminal courts, the judges, they all know about this. They all know that the mentally ill are getting arrested by the police. So they're having encounters they know that they're getting charged with fall, you know, from, you know, trying to, you know, avoid arrest or battery on an officer. The judges all know that that oftentimes were bogus charges and the charges would get dropped. And so it was a big cycle. So the, the person would get arrested, trumped up charges. They're coming in front of the judge. The judge looks at the prosecutor and they're like, there's nothing they can do. They, they can't. Go institutionalize them. They just let them back out on the street. A month later, that's the same thing. So a lot, a lot of all the judges basically knew, and they still do. Um, and the city of Miami Police Department, Miami Dade Police Department, Miami Dade County's Police Department, they all basically it was pretty common knowledge that they had no special training on how to deal with the mentally ill. And some police departments will actually have a special division. So if somebody is exhibiting you know, issues that telltale issues, they'll call they'll call that division in the same way that let's say somebody's on a suicide or on the edge of a building. The, the regular police officer might see that and might participate. But the first thing they're doing is they're calling for special backup. So if you're going to have special backups for that, why wouldn't they also be trained? I mean, they're trying to deescalate somebody who's on the edge of a building. I mean, that's almost the same types of tactics that you would use, it wouldn't be a stretch 
just to give them a little extra training. So, Yvonne, the Internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic. And it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world. But if nobody knows about them, then they're not going to come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like Digital Law Marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the Internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization. It's really important that your firm's site is is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website and you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. So well, well, by the time this, my case got to trial, Judge Steve Leifman uh, got so upset about the whole thing that, you know, just the whole cycle and there was like no solution and the police really weren't doing anything that he sort of set up his own. I think he actually set up his own division in the criminal courthouse to deal with that these types of cases. I think he's still um, active in this in this particular space, but I don't know that any progress has been made. And it's not mm. just Miami. It's, as I was researching it, I was trying to find other police departments that actually had programs. I was hoping to find uh, police departments that had programs at the same time that this took place so I could you know, show a jury, hey, you know, out in San Francisco or out in Boston, they have the same thing. And they all meet together and talk about it. But I, it was back in the days when internet was not nearly as 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 powerful it is as it is now. So I was really struggling to get information. And one police department doesn't want to talk to you know a plaintiff's attorney, right? And, and digging into their uh, how they operate, you know. So it was it was difficult for me to to get. I mean, if I had the case now, I probably would have been able to uncover a lot more than I was back then. Yeah. Well, and so it sounds like I know I'm jumping around a little bit, but I, I noticed that um, it, I can't remember if it was if it was what I read or or maybe um, your summary of the case, but that um, the, the police officers testified. Did they actually testify in this case that they never hit Mr. Walker? Yeah. So two of the two of the facts that are missing from this is first, Arthur, if he's still alive, is African-American. Uh, all the police officers were not. They were all white or Caucasian. There was so there was nine of them. 
and they and I did bring each and every one of them to testify. And they all testified that all they did was he was in the elevator trying to get away from them. So it's one, you know, just regular elevator, one guy. They said they were all in the elevator and all they did was they wrapped their arms around him. They every single one of them said they wrapped their arms. And I said, how long? You know, it was I thought they would say I wrapped it and then it kicked me and I and somebody else. No, they all said the entire time. They, and I, so it looked ridiculous. I don't think their attorney really did much of a, a workup on his witnesses. And, you know, from my perspective, when I when I tried the case and I asked all these witnesses, these questions, all the police officers, they all came across as the nicest people. Everybody was so nice when the uh, when I concluded, I said, oh, I'm going to lose these. They were all silly. But then I realized that they all said the most ridiculous things. And the, and yeah, we had the medical records and you could show that he was pulverized. He was physically. So even if you let's just say you did hold somebody and you squeeze and squeeze and squeeze and they, you know, like kind of like, you know, George Ford kind of thing, but around the belly, you wouldn't have like, you know, welts and his head was like twice the size of what it was normally. And he was just welts everywhere. So it was clear that they were lying. And, you know, I just showed them the medical records, the jury, and they, you know, they came back in like two hours. And um, that was the highlight of the case. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you know, the, the, and I do want to talk to you a little bit more about how you cross examine police officers who, uh, you know, are, are hostile to you and how, how you handled them. And, it, you know, I think that's uh, you got to have a deft touch there. Um, but, you know, the thing I thought was interesting about reading the Court of Appeals opinion is, you know, there was a special interrogatory. They they made a finding of deliberate indifference uh, to the constitutional rights. So the jury, I mean, you had the jury with you uh, and that that cause. And then the and then the uh, Court of Appeals essentially came in and said, no, you didn't really prove that up, you know, which is, you know, sometimes you can get into whether or not there was a, an appropriate jury charge or some, you know, or something along those lines. But when you have a jury, you know, of I think in Florida, what do you you're six people down there, right? The um that, you know, six people who found, you know, deliberate indifference and then have the this panel of judges come in and say, no, that the jury just got it wrong. Uh, that just seems uh, I don't know. That really didn't sit right with me as far as reading the opinion, uh, you know, and, and I do know that for the Section 1983 cases, it specifically mentions how high of a standard it is and how and how it, I mean, I think they even at one point uh, said the burden on the plaintiff is onerous, uh, you know, so that it, it is a high standard. But but some of the evidence that you had one of the things that we didn't mention was this 1985 grand jury report that there were no procedures in place by Miami-Dade County on how to deal with the mentally ill and then yet the the court of appeals basically said there were some procedures in place and so that couldn't be deliberately indifferent what how I mean I mean that had to shock you a little bit about them just overturning on those grounds or did you kind of have a sense that was coming um, I, well, the case gets appealed and we go to what, the third district court of appeals and the judge that was blindly assigned the case, uh, James Jorgensen w had been the attorney for this police department 10 years before this happened. So my father, who's uh, a Brooklyn scrappy guy said, you got to get to this judge cannot be on this case. You know, that's just I mean, he was essentially there 
for four years before this incident happened. And I'm sure he knew about all the problems with the mentally ill and all that. Um, and when I read the opinion, even when I read it today, uh, you know, when I saw the decision, I was so demoralized, whatever, I really couldn't read it. But when I read it today, you know, what, what you kind of can see, and I guess one of the one of the quirks about appellate work and appellate law, especially in the estate cases, um, is that a judge can, you know, the appellate judges can, they can look at the record or whatever and say, oh, well, we're just going to just completely disregard all this evidence and put in the appellate decision. There was no evidence. Mm -hmm. And what are you going to do? You know, you can, hey, judge, you file a motion for reconsideration. Hey, check out pages 99 through 120 of their main witness who said whatever. So in my particular case, basically 1983 work in police brutality, the typical police brutality case is a, a police officer that is repeatedly beating the crap out of people for no reason, okay? And gets reported, they evaluate that police officer, they suspend the police officer, they bring them back, they don't really punish him that much or her, what have you. And the poli this police officer has done it 30 times and they've killed a couple of people for silly little offenses. And you know that, there, that is, there's a good chance that they're going to do it again because a pattern in practice. That is like the quintessential police brutality case. So most people that have sort of a little bit of knowledge on a 1983 police brutality case, they that's the standard fact pattern. unless. It's like the head of the police department who says, go and take that guy out. All right. We don't like him. So that would be a different scenario because then you have a high ranking official when it's, you know, just your regular ordinary police officer. You have to show sort of this policy and practice and what have you. One of the types, the other type of a uh, 1983 police brutality type of case is a failure to train. So failure to train is like the suicides and me the mental illness is a typical example where they know the police department knows there's a good chance the police are going to encounter somebody with this type of situation and that it's not going to go right and they're going to end up using excessive force. All right. So uh, in the failure to train case law, you don't necessarily need to show that the, you have evidence that the police have you know, killed mentally ill people over something silly because they could they escalated the whole scenario. You can show you can prove meet your burden if you show that it's obvious that there's a need for this kind of training. So if you look at the opinion, there's like no mention. I mean, that was my case was that because going back to the whole thing that I didn't really have Google police departments weren't talking to me. I don't think my the attorney on the opposite opposite side was producing um, accurate information i did a request to produce hey show me all the times that somebody with mental illness you know was hospitalized due to the police or whatever none you know he just kept saying none well it's very easy for you know someone an attorney to do that and it happens all the time so you got to dig deeper and you got to find you know examples and then you go back to the judge judge hey this person is obviously not telling the truth when they're saying there's none and then you get a little bit more you know of the judge helping you i didn't get any of that so i didn't have specific examples that I could show, except for the fact that I think it's pretty obvious that there was an obvious need to train the police officers on how to deal. deal. So my expert 
was very good about explaining to the jury and set a really good record and talked about the fact that there were mentally ill people. And he was a police officer, too. And he talked about the fact that it's not only widespread knowledge in Miami and South Florida, but it, like all across the, the world. And it's any police officers in big cities are going to have these kind of encounters and they know they're not equipped to handle it. And so it was, I thought, the least problematic issue that I had when I went into the appeal was this. So going back to the judge, my father says, get rid of him, ask him to recuse himself, go to the press, whatever. I, at that time, had already hired um, the most prominent um, appellate attorney in the state of Florida. And, um, you know, I told him, I said, hey, what are we going to do about the judge or whatever? And he says, I'm not touching it. It's been 10 years. You know, I'm not going to ask the judge to recuse himself. And and that was, you know, we kind of had a little bit of a fight right before the appellate uh, oral arguments when he said, listen, if you want to make the oral arguments, go for it. You know, I'll drop out or whatever. And at that time, I was like, no, you know, I mean, that would just make me look absolutely horrible. If, you know, this prominent appellate attorney is dropping out, you know, a month before the, right. you know, the, the oral argument or whatever. So. Yeah, I mean, it makes reading it. It makes me crazy. I completely relate to it. Um, yeah. But. You know, it's number one, it's you, you, you pointed out because it's like, what can you do? A motion for reconsideration, they'd make me insane because if you argue that they missed something or whatever, then they're going to say, oh, you already made this argument and arguments you made before aren't a basis for reconsideration. And, um, and they're going to, you know, so then it has to be something new. And if the something new is something that they overlook, then they're going to say, oh, there's nothing new in the record. It's like you cannot win, yeah. you know, unless there's like a change in the law, you cannot win on a motion for reconsideration, I feel like. And um, but the other thing that actually really stuck out to me about the opinion was the second prong that even if you had mm -hmm. made the showing of deliberate indifference, <laughs> that you couldn't establish causation because. Um, your own expert uh, said that even if he hadn't your even if Mr. Walker had not been mentally ill, the force that was used to arrest him would have been excessive. Is that the most ludicrous thing you've ever seen in your entire life? I mean, how? What? <laughs> yeah. It, and just just to add to that, I just want to read the I mean, the very first sentence that the court uh, puts in here is it is undisputed that the plaintiff was a victim of excessive force at the hands of the individual officers. So, I mean, they, there was already a finding that it was excessive force, uh, you know, right. and, and, that, and that was not disputed. <laughs> right. So but so it would have been excessive force even if he wasn't mentally ill. OK, but yeah. <laughs> he was well, mentally ill. You know, the reality is that my, what the causation is, OK, if they were properly trained. Right. He wouldn't have been. He wouldn't have been. You know, they would have been like, OK, sit in the elevator. They could have even let the elevator close, try to find a relative. So what happened to him was it was his girlfriend's apartment. It was during the summer and he was locked out and it was hot. Obviously, Miami, really hot. And he was not on his meds. So I can't remember. It's the classic. Um, Schizophreno, schizophrenia. I just can't remember the name of the medication that people take. Um, so I think he had just started that routine. It was problematic. He didn't want to be on it. Then he gets locked out for a long period of time and he's basically got nowhere to go. So he's 
walking around the apartment and walking, you know, in the hallways outside, up and down, and he's decompressing is what um, my my expert psychologist told me. He was decomp decompressing, no, decompensating. I'm sorry. Yeah, decompensating. Going from like a little agitated to just really like. And anyway, so there was a new neighbor. She sees him, doesn't know him. He's a black guy. She calls the police. So that's how it all started. Um, but that's sort of ignored in the in the record. Um, and, you know, just just the whole, you know, listen, uh, Judge Jorgensen is not alive anymore. Um, I can tell you that even before the case went to him, I was never a James Jorgensen fan. We sit here, the plaintiff's attorneys, you know, we know who's the on the bench at the appellate court. And he was not the plaintiff's friends. He was not even handed. There was nothing about his rulings that I felt and that a lot of my colleagues felt was anything even remotely like I'm a judge. I'm an appellate judge. I'm going to stick to the law. He just seemed like a Wild West cowboy that had no business on the appellate court. He probably got on there because of his con connections, probably because he worked for the police department and he was you know, shaking hands with the right people. And unfortunately, the, the person that really um, suffered because of it was Arthur Walker, certainly not this judge. But it, just well, a little side note here, going back to the negligence, as I'm thinking about this and how horrible the whole thing played out, um, the, we won the negligence claims as well. So we should have, even if the appellate decision got thrown, you know, even if the decision got thrown up by the appellate court, we should have, you know, they didn't really appeal. I mean, you could see the judge says, obviously, it was an excessive force. So you would say, you would think to yourself, well, what happened to the 200,000? I mean, that would have been nice for the guy to get that, at least, or whatever. In the state of Florida, you have three years to file a notice of intent to file a claim if you're going to go after the government. So apparently that wasn't done. It was not my fault. It was the first attorney that handled the case, who was a criminal attorney. And so we had this whole big hearing after the trial, and he didn't have proof that he served the, the notice. Like most attorneys, when you serve something like that, you serve it, you know, you have proof of service, you know, one right. way or another, he's certified. So he didn't have any of that. So, so that added a whole element of, uh, you know, I was, you know, that made me go from being, you know, worried about the judge and then like, oh my God, look, oh, now we're not even going to get this. $200,000, I better win the appeal. They offered 300,000 at that point. They actually exceeded the statutory cap limit, but Arthur said no. And I said, I don't think we should. I think we had a, a, a bang up case. Yeah. I, you know, even though it was, a bad, it was a bad judge, I'm like, boy, they didn't do anything. They didn't right. really have an expert. They just kind of let, it was almost like like when I left at first, I'm like, oh, I'm going to lose because the police officers are so bad. And then I was saying to myself, well, but they obviously lied. And then I was saying, you know, I was talking to my dad. I'm like, boy, the defense attorney didn't do much at all. You know, so now looking back on it, I'm almost thinking like, wow, hmm, Miami-Dade County attorney, judge who used to work with Miami-Dade County attorney. They actually look alike, these two guys. And I just, you know. Yeah. Did um, What did you do with Mr. Walker at trial? You know, Mr. Walker was a great witness. He's a very articulate guy. And he just kind of a lot of it he couldn't remember. You know, he he basically, you know, talked about the fact that he was on the meds, you know, that it took him three months to be able to walk again, that he was swollen up, that he did get hit. 
I mean, I'm doing this by memory or whatever, but I didn't do too much with him. I was more uh, with my expert. And the other thing, you know, when, when I got it, when we talked about doing the show and I was like, well, you know, I lost, you know, at the end I lost, I'm like, does this even really qualify mm-hmm. for material for your episode? So for me, it was sort of a victory in the sense that I'm, I was seven years out. I had no training from other law firms, or other lawyers. And on top of that, I didn't even have a staff at that time. I had no secretary, no assistance at all. And so imagine I had, I think probably 15 witnesses, including the eight police, nine police officers, or what have you. So I would be sitting there like, okay, um, preparing my, my cross-examination. I know I'm going to have to take a break to make a phone, to use the pay phone to go make a call to get the next <laughs> witness in here. Now I'm being thrown this curveball legal issue that I got to go downstairs to the library to research, you know, and so, and I did it for, you know, it was a yeah. week trial with no help whatsoever. So I was, you know, very proud of myself. And then the daily business review, which is a very big prominent um, journal, you know, wrote it up as like one of the top 20 cases. So for me, that sort of catapulted my career into, uh, I became the police brutality case guy in the state of Florida, but that didn't last too long. Cause, <laughs> right. Cause I had a couple more bad decisions. Um, you know, the listen, the judges are very empathetic to the, and they, and I, and I don't blame them. They're very empathetic to judge uh, to police officers who are dealing with, you know, split second decisions. So the right. cards are stacked. And then you, like you said, the 1983 cases, they, like the number of cases that I've seen that have gone to trial and, and, and prevailed at the appellate, I like handful. Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed. Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me. Yes, yes. A lot more working from the computer. Yes. And only getting <laughs> dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services. That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference online, it's more important now than ever. I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them and uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services. Yeah and I mean LTS I'm gonna I'm gonna call them LTS because we're on a first name basis (laughs) you know my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in-person trials one day or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you. You can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. 
Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there. But they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life videos. They do settlement documentaries. They do demonstratives. And everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at ltsatlanta.com. You know, I uh, worked in the 11th Circuit Staff Attorney's Office for uh, out of law school. And I, I um, that was really kind of my first exposure to actually sort of examples of those cases, um, you know, other than what you would read about, uh, you know, for that week in con law or whatever. Um, and I, in reading the standards, especially for summary judgment, I just was like, how does anybody try these cases? How does anybody win these cases that win a summary judgment motion, let alone convince a jury? You know, they're just, um, it just seems like such an impossible standard. So to achieve that with a jury, um, but you know, I'm glad that you picked this case. And I'm also glad that you talked about this background because I mean, so I complained about in, in law school, I complained because at the time we still had to do um, sort of the Easter egg hunt. We had to do the old school way of site checking cases in legal writing. It was sort of like this rite of passage that we still had to do. Mm-hmm. And they got rid of it like when I was still there and they were allowed to just use Westlaw and stuff. And I thought that was so unfair. I was so angry yeah. about it. And now I, I, it really doesn't even occur to me when I think about some of these cases that we're talking about, like this one that you're having like, you can't just shoot off a text on your cell phone um, to your next witness while, you know, while you're sitting there real quickly or, you know, just use the wireless in the courtroom to do something like to do all that and do it by yourself. is really something that, uh, you know, lawyers from before me on have no concept of. Yeah. That's all. I mean, I mean, and you're also like doing the stuff that I, when I have to do it, like for whatever reason, our paralegal slammed, we're getting ready for trial. And there's like the littlest thing I have to figure out, like what gets filed on this, for the certificate of service versus what just gets served, but not filed and <laughs> what to do with the original transcript. My mind like almost shuts down. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I spent hours on that stuff. <laughs> I mean, I got to tell you, I probably spent at least a hundred hours in the library so there was no Westlaw, or, or if there was, I wasn't using it. Uh, it was probably the early days. Um, but I had to go to the library, and I was like literally looking every publication to try to find cases involving the police and the mentally ill. I didn't care where it was. I just wanted something that I could show the judges, uh, you know, that what I'm saying is legally viable. Hey, look, this other yeah. court in Spokane, Washington or whatever. So I would just, I'd be in the lot and I, but I loved it. I really, you know, I, I, this today, if I got to go run to the library, I still love it. I just, yeah. Um, you know, I don't know what it is about going to the library and actually, you know, picking up the books and all that. And now 
even in the Miami-Dade County Library, the librarian's like, oh, Greg, I got to show you. All you got to do now is go on the computer. I'm like, no, you know what? I actually want to go <laughs> treat it and open it up and look at the table of contents, go to the back pages. I think I could, you know, handle that better than, you know, like, okay, flaw, juror, second, click. Right. You know? Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. I was, I was glad that I had to do that um, in law school because there were just little things like understanding why the reporter numbers are the way they are when you are like citing a case, you know, um, understanding how that stuff worked. But I also never had to do it apart from that, like one project. Yeah, that was I I used to enjoy doing research that way and doing the uh, shepherdization and and finding cases that way. But uh, but yeah, you're right. Nobody does that anymore, uh, except for Greg. But uh, no, (laughs) right. You know, Greg, I wanted to ask you, you know, you know, despite the outcome of this case, uh, you know, in the Court of Appeals, which, you know, to me on its face seems kind of unfair. Um, you know, there's a lot of issues that I think lawyers trying cases now can learn from, like especially since you did the 1983 cases in police brutality. Can you talk a little bit about how, um, you know, when you're picking a jury uh, or, you know, up to the point of when you're cross-examining police officers who, you know, generally uh, police officers have uh, are positively viewed by jurors. And so, you know, you got to be careful about how you handle some of them um and and you know talk about uh, you know your um your jury selection and things like that when you're when you're talking about you know uh saying that the police uh you know brutalized this man yeah i think that at some level trial work is not for everyone and some people's personalities especially in the heat of the moment or under stress aren't um pleasant i guess for lack of a uh, lack of a better word and I, I think you have to have that kind of makeup where you're people will listen to you people will believe you uh you're not offensive even if you're on the other side a lot of people don't necessarily want to see you combative Oh, you were the one that did this to my uh, client. Oh my God, how dare you? How dare you? You know, they don't, <laughs> right. right? I mean, sometimes, you know, you've got to take, seize the moment. And I mean, I've been in trials where my client lied and it just went haywire. And my op, my opposing attorney just completely crucified my trial. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I can't believe you're such a jackass and you're getting away with it because my guy brought it out on, on, on himself. So, yeah. you know, the picking the jury is, is just, it's, it's a great experience, even if you are not a trial attorney, if you can go in an interesting case and just see attorneys pick juries, it's really a fascinating thing. So my line of work right now, I do a healthcare collection in Florida. It's called PIP. It's high volume stuff. Lots and lots of cases, not big damages, but it's mainly you get your client for your money. You get your client's money. Then you get attorney's fees. So you do a four day trial. Maybe you get one hundred thousand dollars for fees on a simple, straightforward case. And so because there's a lot of these cases, we have lots of jury trials. And so some people are doing lots and lots of trials and you see, so some of them I actually bring in when I try my cases and I let them pick my jury. Even though I feel like I'm I'm a likable guy and most, if I try to put on the charm, I feel like I'm gonna get somewhere. Um, now, maybe they don't really like the way I look or I sound like I'm from New York or too many hand gestures or, or too much stick, whatever it is. But for the most part, I, you know, can, 
I, I, I believe that my personality um, helps out. And a lot of people, you got to know when to, you know, hold back and not really interrogate a juror. You know, some people, you know, just really go after certain jurors, jurors and then they just kill it for themselves because the rest of the, the jury pool thinks you're, you know, a horrible person. So yeah. it's really you got to think on your feet and you got to see things. you got to be able to look at the jury. Hey, are they even paying attention? Do they like that? You know, and you're looking at the witness and, you know, and you're asking questions or whatever of the juror, or a potential juror. And, you know, so it's a lot of moving parts. And are you good with that? Can you do that? And if not, you know, you're really you might be doing a disservice to the client. You know, you go yeah. in there, you try the case, you're doing the best that you can, but you know what? You're not a pleasant person. Nobody likes you, <laughs> especially in the heat of the moment. Yeah. No, I, I, I've seen lawyers get into arguments with jurors in uh, during voir dire. And I, it's just sort of stunning because you're like, you know, you're not gaining any ground with the jury and you're just making yourself look bad. And, you and on, you know, honestly, you know, at the end of the day, whether or not you're trying to figure out reasons for uh, strikes for cause, I mean, you really just want to learn information that you can use and not uh, and not try and convince anybody, at least at that point. Um, you know, so I, I, I it, it's always been sort of. Um, surprising to me if i see a, a lawyer start arguing with a juror during uh, voir dire because it, to me that's just it, one there's no purpose for it and it's just so dangerous um you know that just sort of a absolutely don't do that <laughs> so. yeah i mean related to that it's like when you it took me a long time to learn and i i would still say i have a lot to learn but this you know we've talked about it before steve how these you know Defense lawyers will have arguments that might be okay for briefing or for the motion for summary judgment or for what, you know, the, the judge is going to see but that a jury is going to hate, you yeah. know, and that, you know, you have to adapt from there. Or, you know, I just recently defended a bunch of client depositions and there were these questions in the client depositions that, um, especially when I first started, like freaked me out, you know, these questions about, you know, going through the complaint and well, what do you think was defective about our product or whatever it is, you know? And, and now I'm like, it's all this stuff that gives you so much heartburn, but if the defense lawyer knows what they're doing, especially in front of the jury, they're not going to do that in front of the jury and the jury's, you know, never going to know, but there's so much of that um, having to adapt and think about that. You know, you sit in some of these depositions and you're just like, yeah. Do you ever think you would ever put this into evidence at any point? And if, if not, what are we doing? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, but I, you know, Greg, it just sounds like you had, especially going into all those trials that soon. I mean, it just sounds like you kind of had no fear. That's what it sounds like to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, listen, when you hear, I, here I am, I'm a B my, I was in, in high school you know, I hit my academic peak. And then I went to college, University of Virginia. People thought I was smart. And then I kind of got, you know, I ran up against a lot of smart people. Go my law school now, back to the University of Miami. Good school, but not at the same level as University of Virginia. So I sort of was humbled about the whole thing at that point. So, I mean, the analogy that I would make is like Tom Brady. Tom Brady was drafted in the sixth round. I'm sure Tom Brady was like saying to himself, all these teams that are passing me right now and I'm losing all this money, I'm going to stick it in your face down the road. Right. And that yeah. was sort of my attitude was I said, <laughs> I don't, you know what? I know 
that because my dad would tell me he's like you know the people that make the most money are not the judges uh they're not the yeah they're ones that start out at the big law practices they start out making a lot of money they get burned out they hate it half of them quit after five years or whatever the ones that make the money are going to be the ones that own their firms and and all that so don't worry about the next five years just get the training and the and so i was just furious and fired up and i just wanted to like please can i are you trying to case i'll go with you you know i was looking for pro bono there's always pro bono opportunities in federal court on very interesting cases so i was like looking and you know i just was fearless because i hadn't what was my alternative my, yeah. my best friend and i in law school uh he got he you know law review the whole nine yards all the girls loved him he's four inches taller than me and <laughs> we we're both tennis players he beat me in tennis and i was the number six guy on the team he was number five that team won the state tournament in florida and only the top five played so i missed out on all these pent up things and he's still my best friend or whatever and we laugh all the time and um so i just i had to i was determined to do something to make myself look good so right before i really kicked in uh when after law school i took a couple of years off and went traveling around and worked and tried to be a poet and all this. It was just nonsense. But, you know, we got back together again after my whole little traveling around and short fiction. And he's, you know, we went and played golf and we played golf with these two guys that were middle-aged, like probably me right now. They were a little overweight and they were smoking cigarettes and they were two attorneys and they had their own practices and they were so miserable. They every word out of their mouth was like, "This that judge is an asshole." That was like, bah. so we left that. And I said, David, I don't want to work for these guys. I don't want to like these are the only guys that would probably hire me. And I I'm just going to be like them. So let me just go on. I said I'm going to go out on my own. My dad will help me get some cases. You know, I'll try to start this nonprofit, and maybe that'll spin off and i'll be an environmental attorney and that sounds kind of interesting so that just kind of like drove me i'm not that way anymore i'm not so driven to like show that i am not a b minus law student at a <laughs> right I kind of yeah. i've gotten past that thank god right yeah <laughs> well because what you did is way cooler than making good grades in law school yeah so yeah. i tried i did try i did try yeah well, and I will say, I mean, you know, uh, starting your own law practice out of law school, I mean, that takes uh, that takes guts. I mean, that's and, and a lot of hard work. I mean, there's no no doubt. So uh, that's that's to be commended because that is not easy to do. Yeah. No, you know, I mean, I had my father helping me out, you know, making sure I didn't, you know, do trust count, trust account violations and and all that. But uh, yeah, no, it was, uh, you know, I used to just keep files and you know, I had so many files, how to do this, how to do that. And I'm still kind of going through them and laughing and throwing them away or scanning them. Now I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe you know how to open up a bank account or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> I I have to ask since your since your father's still practicing, do you guys ever try have cases together that you work on or is it uh no, you know, I so in Florida you have an inventory attorney. So if you die, the inventory takes over. So I always say to my dad, dad, you got to update, you know, I'm his inventory attorney. So I'm like, dad, have you updated your case list? You know, like, I'd like to look at it just in case I got to step in or whatever. So we don't really do too many cases together. We never really did. He's a very different 
creature than I am. And I'm much more of a control, let's be organized, clean, and do it this way. Whereas he's more like random guy. And I, you know, he wasn't like, hey, Greg, I'm going to conform to the way you are. And I was not like dad. <laughs> I, you know, so I just said, we'll be across the street. We shared space. Um, we're working on one case right now together. Uh, but I'm sort of more doing like the legal research, actually, and uh, making sure the pleadings are right and all that, you know, because it's sort of con- it's a million dollar, million and a half dollar case that he's involved in. And I'm like, Dude, you're 91. You're, of course, you're going to make mistakes. You got to, you know, I, I essentially forced my way into the case. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but now he's fine. Actually, the other day he with, you know, I said, dad, let's call, you know, Joe Blow, whatever, and have a meeting. And in the past, be like, no, we don't need to do that. Why are we doing that? I don't I'm too busy. And then, and he said, yes. I was like, oh, I'm like, dad, <laughs> <laughs> who is this? Yeah. yeah, maybe I should get worried if he's gotten to that right. point. <laughs> <laughs> well, very um, good, very good. Well, uh, Greg, this has been just a, a, a really enjoyable talk. I want to make sure uh, before we let you go, uh, is there anything else that, that you want to make sure our listeners know about Walker versus Miami-Dade County uh, that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet? You know, I mean, I guess the one thing that I... You know, I don't do police brutality work. I, uh, you know, I know that it's always an uh, an issue. Um, bad things happen. There are bad police officers out there. There are good police officers out there. We might not have enough police officers out there. So I think people that have bad encounters with police officers, you know, have got to kind of separate the their particular incident from the overall, uh, you know, goal of having you know the police officers protecting us and wanting to be police officers and being properly paid and police departments also need to sort of not be so dogmatic and maybe listen to advocates. Hey, listen, you need to train your officers or develop a division on how to deal with the mentally ill. They never want to hear that from the community. Not every police office, not every police department is like that, but a lot of them are very internalized or whatever. So to the extent that you, any of the listeners actually have connections with police departments, uh, you know, that are basically like saying no to anything new, you know, to, you know, you got to figure out a way to get their ear, you know, because yeah. it's a matter of life and death on a lot of these situations. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I, the, the, the mental health uh, issues, uh, like you said, I mean, they, they, um, I don't it's not clear that they've gotten any better over the years. And um, and it's definitely a community that needs uh, needs service and needs help. So um, um, and, and I, you know, and I just have to say, unfortunately, I mean, I, I think these are these are um, um, it's, it takes a lot of courage to take on some of these cases. And unfortunately, the the reading the opinion uh, in, in on the appeal of your case gives you second thoughts on taking on the 1983 cases, because even as the Court of Appeals wrote it, it seemed like I mean, you you know, the jury found the elements. Uh, you had some good evidence, uh, you know, had violations uh, of, of policies and and uh, in the in the Court of Appeals. You know, just said basically you could tell that the court of appeals just had their mind made up you know, what they were going to do in that case. Yeah, well, life's not life's not perfect. Yep, that's right. That's right. Um, 
Well, listen, Greg, we really appreciate your time. Let me remind everybody that we've been talking about the case of Arthur Walker versus Miami-Dade County, which was tried back in uh, December or actually before December of 2002. The Court of Appeals opinion came out in December of 2002 uh, in Miami-Dade County and uh, was a $1.5 million verdict, unfortunately overturned on appeal under Section 1983. Um, but, uh, you know, really great work. And um, and I, I want to uh, thank you, Greg, for coming on. And I want to tell everybody uh, that if you want to look up Greg, you can go to greggoldfarb.com. And that's Greg, G-R-E-G-G. G O L D F A R B. Uh, so there's three G's there in the middle. But GregGoldfarb.com. Uh, Greg, thank you so much for your uh, for your time and for and for coming on the show and sharing with us. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology. And Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast. And we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.